We've really enjoyed having different men come and lead us in our study of the Psalms through this summer. And today is no exception. We're really glad to introduce one of our, uh, one of Fallon's very own. Uh, is back in college that I met this guy and first heard of Fallon America. And he was only there at college for about a year and a half. And boy, oh boy, what a splash he made. What are you laughing at? Because you, you know. It's Fallon's own Michael Parrish. He loves this church. He loves his adult Sunday school class. And we're glad to have Michael come. Come on, brother. Thank Bring you, it. Brother. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Well, I found out this morning that I'm going to be preaching on Psalms 121. <laughs> So I better turn there. Before I, I start my message, Jack Beach has laid down the law. Well, first it was Danny Clifford that was on time. And, and then Jack Beach on no jokes and the message. So that forces me to begin with before the message, with a group of travelers in the 1800s going over mountains, through valleys, with all travail there is with our pioneer travelers. The wagon train came to one of their halts wagon master could hear drums. The drums were getting louder. The scout for the wagon train looked at the wagon master and he said, I don't like the sound of those drums. About that time, an Indian jumped out from behind the bush and he says, it's not our regular drummer. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade, is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, for that we are so thankful to you. We are proud of you. We boast in you. You are the creator of heaven and earth. And Lord, it is you we seek help. It is you who we turn to. It is you who we give great praises. Lord, we so love being obedient to you. You loved us. And because of that, Lord, we want to love you. We want to be obedient. We want to live for you. I pray that today, that as you use me, Lord, you will use me as you use the apostles. Use me as a weak vessel. But I pray that what comes forth from my lips, what comes forth through my mouth, will be powerful because it is your word. It's not mine. It is your word. It's alive. It's active. It's sharp than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce both bone and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, we praise you. And I pray now that you will be seen high and lifted up. And then when this is finished today, when this, when this proclamation, when this message is finished, I pray that we will see you, Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's to your Father and through your name that we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. When we look to the mountains, what do we see? What mountain do we look to? We look to Mount Calvary. When I look to Mount Calvary, I see empty. What do I see? I see a cross with blood. I see something that represents death. And then I'm reminded, as the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews wrote, without the shedding of blood, there is what? There is no forgiveness. I'm reminded of that. I feel guilty. I think I should be on that cross. It says in the Bible, for the wages of sin is what? Death. But I'm righteous, right? No, it pretty much makes that clear too. All of my righteousness are as filthy rags, dirty, filthy rags. The wages of sin are dead. I should be on that cross. And something reminds me, something that Bob Burroughs used to hammer, and that's Galatians 2.20. It says, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Wait a minute. I have been on the cross. I was with him. It says I was crucified with him. But wait. No scars? 1 Peter 2.24. And he himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. You have heard from this pulpit, you have heard from the teaching of imputed righteousness, where Christ, perfectly righteous, 
zero in sin, took our sins from that cross, on that cross from us, took our sins upon himself. Where'd that leave us? Sinless. Righteous? No, it doesn't say that. Sinless. It left us sinless. Well, wait a minute. Go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin, Christ, to be sin on our behalf, to take our sins, that we would be sinless. So what? So that we become the righteousness of God. How? In Christ. He takes His righteousness to a totally sinless body and He puts His righteousness in us so that we can look to the mountains. If you don't have that relationship with Christ, you need to talk to myself, one of the elders, somebody here. I also see an empty tomb, a promise. Think of Corinthians. We too will be one day in the tomb and one day a new body. So what is the setting for this psalm that we're reading in 121? 2 Kings 18, 17 through 25. Let's look there for just a moment. Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan... And Rapsarius and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem. And they, when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is the highway of the fuller's field. When they called to the king, Eliakim, Eliakim the son of Hilakiah, who was over the household of Shebna, the scribe of Joah, the son of Asphath, the recorder, came out to them. Okay, so we're, what's the setting here? We have General Tartan with a huge army. Way overkill. Way overkill. We have a lot of brass. And we have a commander. That's what, that is what... Rabshakeh means. We have a commander, a representative for the king of Assyria. So in verse 19, Rabshakeh says, So now, to Hezekiah, say now to Hezekiah. Now right away, what do we see there? Say now to Hezekiah. You see something missing there from this address? Who is Hezekiah? He's a king. All of a sudden, this commander and Hezekiah on the same basis, first name basis. Well, let's see how he refers to his king, the king of Assyria. He says, thus says the great king of Assyria. What is this confidence you have? You say, but they're only empty words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now, whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? What a great question. Who do you think you are and who is going to support you in this? He goes on to say, Egypt? 
and he pretty much belittles the Pharaoh and everything about Egypt because it's ridiculous. Egypt cannot go up against Assyria. We have a Captain Obvious moment here. Well, it's very much established and very true that they're human help. The best help they can come up with is Egypt, and that's not going to do it. Verse 22 gives mentions of a second source of help. If you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and those altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Altar, Jehovah's altar, not all of these other ones. Look at verse 4. It says, and this is talking about Hezekiah. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke into pieces the bronze serpent serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehesheth. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him there was none like him among the kings of Judah. What did Hezekiah do? He destroys all of these polytheistic other gods. He destroys them. And what does Reshekah do with that? He says, you see what your king has done? He's destroyed all of these gods. He has insulted them. What's he doing? He is establishing that what Hezekiah has just proven is he doesn't need, or at least he's saying, I don't need those gods. What is, how does uh, this commander view that? He commands that as a weakening of troops. I think I'm, I'm interested in the serpent. Isn't that something? Remember a few weeks back when, uh, when Steve Bauman talked about the staff? And I think about this staff that's holding this, this serpent, this brass serpent. You remember the story? There's all these fiery snakes because Israel is suffering from a plague. And you know what happens when these snakes strike and bite you? You die. Well, Moses goes and he pleads to God and says, This is uh, killing everybody here. So God tells him to make this bronze serpent, put it on a pole and hold it up before the people. When they're struck, I think of, of Simi Travis's brother, Bobby, been, been bit by rattlesnakes a few times, and he will tell you it's not, it's not where you want to go. Well, these guys are seriously bit, and what do they have to do? They have to look at that brass serpent. What does that do? That saves them. So I ask you, how important is that brass serpent? Well, you might say, pretty important they had to look at it. And I might say, yeah, but you know what? We're missing the point here somehow. Because how important was that serpent when it ended up having incense burned to it? What do we see here? We see that a created thing is being worshipped. They're worshipping a created thing rather than creator. And we say, what idiots. Until we look into our own hearts and we say, how many times have we misrepresented 
God, something he's doing. How many times have we turned our focus on the wrong thing? I think of the ark. It can be, it can be misunderstood. The fish that swallowed Jonah. All of these things, if they're your focus, you're missing the point. God is the focus. God had him make that bronze serpent. God is who they needed to be looking to. How well did it help them when they looked to that serpent and burned their incense and such before it? It didn't. It hindered. In verse 23, we see the commander making a bargain. He says, make a bargain with my master. He's talking to the people of Judah. In verse 25, the commander even portrays himself as a representative of God. The Lord said to me. So in trying to keep peace in this entire debauchery of what is going on here, Eli Kim, Shebna, and Joah ask for the Shekha to speak in Aramaic. So not to stir the people. All the people of Judah, only a few would speak that. So they're saying, hey, let's, let's kind of keep some... Some assemblies. Let's try to keep some peace and get this thing worked through. So what does this commander do? Does he start speaking and the Aramaic? No, oh no. He just continues to stir the people and have he, he continues to directly address the mass to cause rebellion. What's he doing? He begins to discredit Hezekiah. What does he accuse Hezekiah of doing? Of deceiving. The very thing that he's doing in order to do what? What was he attempting? He is discrediting Jehovah, the God of Israel. He is trying to discredit him, as Satan so often does. Then he makes promises about going to their their land, the, the promised land, if you will, that he had for them. Looking at verse 31. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. Come out to me and eat, drink of his vine, eat his fig tree, and drink each of his waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to the land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah. He misleads you saying the Lord will deliver us. Now look what he, where he goes with this. Look where he goes with this. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered this land from the hand of Assyria, the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepherven, Hina? And Iva, have they delivered Samaria from the hands? Among who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand? The Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? I love this next verse. But the people were silent and answered him not a word. Why? For the king's commandment was do not answer him. Do you see what he just did? He laid out he laid out perfection. What came from his lips reminds me of Caiaphas 
either Caiaphas or Annas, when he said it would be better for one man to die than the whole nation, meaning Christ. He didn't have a clue what he was saying. He just discredited all of these gods, bringing the attention to Jehovah with his mindset, there's no way he could do this. He's safe with that. So I ask each of us, as we go to Psalm 121, where does a believer in Christ, where does their help come from? Well, the world has many answers to this, doesn't it? We have psychiatrists. We have self-help books. We have well-meaning friends. We have the Internet. We have fill-in-the-blank We have a lot of alternatives, incidentally, most of them with a monetary amount attached. But we have a lot of answers. Is that where we turn? How many of you with computers use the help menus? That always pulls you through. Where do we turn? Help comes to the saints only from above. The purposes of God, the divine attributes, the immutable promise, the covenants ordered, and all things ensure the providence, the predestination, and listen to this, and proved faithfulness of the Lord. Behold Israel. God did very well with Israel. They're still alive and well. His history is great. He proved his faithfulness. He is faithful to us when we're faithless. Why is that? Because he cannot deny himself. That's who we turn to after we have done what? Checked with the elders to make sure we're in good standing at Parkside after we have... No, no. We seek him anytime, anywhere. Not only does our help come from Him, but when do we lift our eyes to the Lord? Do we lift our times when things are really tough? You're tore up. Things are dragging you down. You're in sorrow. Panic. And need. You know what I think the most dangerous time for us is? When things are great. When things are well. Got the bull by the horns, as we say in Fallon. That's when we should be going to Him. When we have our friends are there. Everything we need is right there. Right here. We're not even looking there. We got everything right here. See where I'm going? That self-sufficiency. That's when I think we should worry. I'm going to read from the treasury of David, Charles Spurgeon, how this summed up, this, this psalm. I think it's beautiful. To heaven I lift mine eye. To heaven Jehovah's throne. For there my Savior sits on high, and thence shall strength and aid supply to all he calls his own. He will not faint nor fail, nor cause thy feet to stray. 
For him no weary hours assail, nor evening darkness spreads her veil, or his eternal day. Beneath the light divine, surely shalt thou move. The sun with milder beams shall shine. The eye still queen, her lamp incline, benignant from above. For he, thy God and friend, shall keep thy soul from harm. And each sad scene of doubt attend. And guide thy life and bless thy end with his almighty arm. Reading another from this book, an excerpt. In the agony of troubled conscience, always look upwards to the gracious God to keep thy soul steady. For looking downward on thyself, thou wilt find nothing but what will increase thy fear. Infinite sins, good deeds few and imperfect. It is not thy faith, but God's faithfulness. Thou must reply or rely upon, casting thine eyes downwards on thyself to behold the great distance betwixt what thou deservest and what thou desirest is enough to make thee giddy, stagger, and reel into despair. Ever, therefore, lift up thine eyes to the hills where whence cometh thy help, never viewing the deep dale of thy own unworthiness, but to abate thy pride when tempted to presumption. Tom Fuller. Thomas Fuller, years 1608 to 1661. Satan uses our guilt, doesn't he? He really does. Can you look to the mountains? Can you look beyond the mountains and see Christ when you are riddled with your own guilt? And you can't see past your own guilt? Satan loves that. Satan loves that. It overwhelms us. Because you have sinned today, this terrible thing is going to happen to you. But if you'll do this, you've got to try harder. All of these things come to mind. But as Tom, Thomas Fuller states, For looking downward on thyself, thou shalt find nothing but what will increase thy fear. Infinite sins, good deeds few and imperfect. It is not thy faith. I repeat the words, it is not thy faith, but God's faithfulness you must rely When you're overwhelmed with your self-guilt, remember He has forgiven you. This is freedom. Hebrews 8, 12, I will be merciful to their, to our. I will be merciful to our iniquities. I will remember to their, your, my iniquities. I will remember our sins no more. It is His faithfulness. It is His sinlessness. We must rely It is He, when we look to the mountains that we see, that will help us because of nothing you have done. He will help us. That's why we look to Him. He, the story I told you of Hezekiah has a great ending to it as well, by the way. But And Hezekiah did nothing to make it happen. I can't say that he brought a great war and caused it. No. The Lord took Assyria away and let them die to their own demise. But he did it. God did it. That is who the psalmists are looking to the mountains for. When you look to the mountains when things are great, don't look in your contentment. You know, Paul told us whatever the contentment he could find, whatever his circumstances, he could find contentment. Look to the one with appreciation who gave up his life 
for you. Who is that? He is the one who made heaven and earth. Thank God for his provision. Not focused on our own means of life. We must be cognizant of the God who made heaven and earth. We've got to look beyond Calvary to Christ Jesus, the one who made heaven and earth. Satan would have us focusing on the valley. Is that clear? Understand that? What a, what a great truth. Because so many times when I've been caught up in this, I'm so caught up in myself and how I'm going to get out of this and what I'm going to do and, and what I, 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 that I miss the point where finally I realize I can look up to the mountains and guess who's helping me? My God who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. The paths we take are dangerous and difficult, aren't they? They really are. I look around this this room and I, I think, my goodness, what you have been through. So many of you. Tough times. Rocky, rough, boggy. Look at Psalms 37, 23, and 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. Right there. Who establishes those steps? You think you're taken on your own? Established by the Lord. And he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong. Why? Because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. He's his keeper. Another psalmist recognizing he is his keeper. He holds his hand. How can we continue in this dark, treacherous terrain? By the Lord holding our hand and bringing us through there, keeping us. He who keeps you will not slumber. Another use of the word keeper. In 1 Kings 18, we find Elijah. You know the story. And what is he saying in that context? No, we, we know the story. The God, people of Baal were trying to get the fire to come to their altar. It's not happening. What does Elijah say? Maybe he's on vacation, your gods. Maybe your gods are a little busy right now and don't have time for you. <laughs> Maybe your gods are asleep. Yell louder. They might hear you. When Elijah knows what he is saying. And he knows that his God is alive. His God does not sleep in the biblical sense. Does not sleep in the sense that we know his God is alive. And we know the rest of the story. Our God never sleeps. He never tires. You can call on him anytime. And he is not weary. Spurgeon said, when dangers are awake around us, we are safe. For our preserver is awake also and will not permit us to be taken unawares. No fatigue or exhaustion can cast our God into sleep. His watchful eyes are never closed. 
A poor woman, as an Eastern story has it, came to a sultan one day asking for compensation for the loss of some property. How did you lose it? The monarch said. I fell asleep, was the reply, and a robber entered my dwelling. Why did you fall asleep? I fell asleep because I believed you were awake. The sultan was so much delighted in the answer that he had the woman, that the woman's losses were all made up. But what is true only by legal fiction of human governments, that they never sleep is true in the most absolute sense with reference to the divine government, our God never sleeps. That's N.M. Michael from way back. We are kept safe because he doesn't sleep. Isn't that great? Never too tired. I love it. I love it. Don't always go to him for my help. But I'm always thankful when I finally get that moment that I realize. I think of Jacob. Remember when Jacob was sleeping? The ladder went to heaven. The angels were descending and ascending. And all this is going on. A great, great dream. But do you remember what... You remember what God said to him in Genesis 28, meaning to Jacob, in 28:15, Behold, I am with you, and get this, and will keep you wherever you go. He who keeps Israel. Again, we've seen how well one, one God has kept Israel from annihilation. And he cares enough to keep his own. Did you notice that? I love the I love the fact, not only Israel, but us, Israel, individually. Spurgeon says the mercy mercy to one saint is the pledge of a blessing to them all. Mercy to one saint is a pledge to a blessing to them all. Many years ago, a captain's ship took his family from Liverpool to New York. One night, there was a great storm. All were sleeping peacefully. And all of a sudden, a squall arises. The winds are great. Everyone is thrown from their bunk and on the floor, including an eight-year-old girl. In fear, they all began dressing, preparing, putting on the jackets, preparing for the worse. The little girl said, What's the matter? And they told her, of the squall, how it had struck the ship, how it had just put them in such turmoil, how terrible things were. Poor little eight-year-old couldn't understand that. That explained just how bad it was. She said, Is father on deck? Yes, father's on deck. The little girl returned to her bunk. As almost as soon as she hit the pillow, she was asleep in spite of the winds and turbulence. Fear not the windy tempest wild. Thy bark they shall not wreck. Lie down and sleep, O helpless child. Thy father is on the deck. In the biblical treasury of 1873. May we have that childlike faith. That child knew that her dad knew what he was about and what that ship was about. Small thing. About us. Do we know? Do we trust? That the God who made heaven and earth 
can handle our biggest problems? We know that. Ah, to put our faith in Him. The Lord is your keeper. He keeps as a rich man keeps his treasure, as a captain keeps his city with a strong garrison, as a royal guard keeps his monarch's head. The shepherd of the flock is the shepherd of every sheep and will take care that not one, even the littlest one, shall perish. Matthew Henry. Did you get that? I remember years ago, again, talking of Bob, thinking of when we went through John and that shepherd, Christ Jesus, the great shepherd. You know, he knows your voice. You know his. Amazing. You know, he cares about you. Every one of you. Amazing. I just love it. I see in, the, in, in this same verse, because he uses shade, I immediately think of protection. Isaiah 4, 5, and 6 talks about a cloud by day, a protective cover over all of Mount Zion, protecting from the sun. We know what the sun can do in Nevada, don't we? Many of you have been to the Middle East. Many of you have done duty. In the Middle East, in the Middle East, you know what the sun can do. You ever appreciate its shade? Well, it's protection. He is the shade on. Does it say the shade on the right hand? Is that what it says? The shade on the right hand? No. It says your shade on your right hand. I think that's beautiful. How much more personal can he make it? That's each of us. Your shade on your right hand. Why do we think of the right hand? We think of the importance of the right hand. Remember when the apostles were fighting over who would be at the right hand of God? That's big. The right hand is big. We understand that. Another perspective of this, that is always present with thee, or as the Jewish Arab renders it, nigher than thy shadow at or from thy right hand. Thomas Fenton. I just love the fact that the Lord has my shade. He provides my shade, my hand. We're not going to fight over who gets to be in, under my tree, under my shade. The Lord provides for each of us. It's a beautiful thing. 24-7. Nor the moon by night. I'm not going to do a lot with it. I've looked a lot. <laughs> I looked a lot, but... What it comes down to in my thinking, and I'm satisfied with, is he protects you 24-7. Moon, sun, he protects you. The Lord will protect you from all evil. Now, what does that mean? He will protect you from all evil. Sounds pretty easy from here on out then. Protects you from all evil. So what does that mean? Obviously, I'm, I'm doing a direct quote from a, and I'll try to explain it a little better after, from a commentary. I saw I really like the way that they, they spelled this out. Not protected from the evil of affliction. We know that. We've sensed it. We've seen it here. Though from that penal evil, or as the real one, it being made to work for good, 
but protected from the evil of sin, but not from the being or commission of it. But we are protected from its dominion and damning power. Protected from that. You are not damned by that. You are not required to keep every point of the law. Why? Because it has been kept for you. Remember, we talked about that. The imputed grace. Well, it's done. So what do we do? Well, I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to serve my master. I want to show him. I appreciate that. I love him for that because he first loved me. Or from a final and total falling away from it. And from the evil of the world, not from the tribulation in it. Nor from reproach or persecution of it. But from the wickedness and lusts that are in it. And from the wicked men of it. Their power, rage, fury. And from the evil one, Satan. Not from his temptations. But from sinking under them and perishing by them. Look at John 17 verse 12. John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. This is Christ Jesus talking to God. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and listen to this, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one, Satan. What a great protection. We don't appreciate that, do we? I don't think we really do because we don't, we don't understand it. We can't even believe it can be done. We are protected. We see the results. We see all of that that happens, but we are protected. And ultimately, we will be in a sinless, perfect perfect world so who do we look to for our protection to the god who made heaven and earth to christ jesus because of the imputed righteousness of christ as we mentioned earlier from second corinthians a believer is forgiven for their sins the ones you've already committed in the past the ones you're committing the ones in the future you're forgiven romans let's go to romans 8 1 through 4 Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has what? Has set you free from the law of sin and death. For the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh. God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of the sinful flesh as an offering for sin on our behalf. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk accordingly to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Wow. Met here recently. Brennan and I were in a meeting and he brought up that from that gracious act, that imputed righteousness drives us, gives us that desire to serve him. He will keep our soul. He will keep your soul. From the world, from the flesh, from the devil. Kept until the eternal kingdom. He keeps your soul. If he's keeping it, no one can touch it. Period. From our coming out, the time we came into this world in birth, 
our returning to the earth and one day in glory. Yes, and forever He keeps our soul. Forever. Again, looking at John 10, 28, and 29. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Christ talking. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I, Christ Jesus, and the Father are one. Summing up this passage, I used my MacArthur Study Bible and just looked. A very simple summary that he has taken. Verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my what come from? Help. Where does our help come from? God is our help. Sufficient? Way, 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 way sufficient. Perfect. Verses 3 and 4, God is our keeper. What does that mean? Remember the psalmist said, He's walking with you, hand in hand. He's holding you. When you go to stumble, He helps you. He takes you through that rough terrain. He's your keeper. Protector. Remember, He has the shade. He protects us. He is between you and what can really harm you. He is your protector, verses 5 and 6. And God is your preserver, verses 7 and 8. You know what that means? We're good for eternity. Did I say life? I don't understand life. Too hard to define. Eternity? I don't understand that either. But I know what I'm saying. (laughs) We are good. We are preserved for eternity. New bodies. Thank you, Lord. A sinless world. For that, I thank Him. I can't wait for that. But until then, where are we going to look? A lot of you have been through it. A lot of you are going through it. Much worse than than I've ever known. So where do you turn? We're going to have to rely on doctors. That's, That's a given. But where do you turn ultimately? Who really cares? Who's your shepherd? Whose voice do you hear? Do you seek? The thing I ask is that when we go away from here this morning, I hope, I hope that if you recognize nothing else in this, you recognize that Christ has given us eternal life. We should be grateful. I am most of the time. Some of the time. Every time I try, it doesn't work out. But I just am so thankful. And that's how I hope that we look. Do you trust Him? Really trust Him? Don't trust me. I don't care what the situation is. Don't trust me. I'll let you down. There isn't a person in here no matter how dependable, it let you down. But let me tell you, Christ will never let you down. And for that, turn your heads, turn your eyes to the mountains. But see past, see past Mount Calvary. See Christ Jesus. 
You know what? He's preparing a home, preparing a beautiful room for you in his father's home, in his father's great dwelling place. I so look forward to joining him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, even as we look at this passage, it's powerful. There's so much there, Lord. You are our helper, keeper, protector, and preserver. You are an amazing God. I'm amazed that you love us. We're not always lovely. We are sinful. And yet you love us, and you have already forgiven us. I pray that that will not be a motivation to go on sinning, that grace may abound. May it never be. May it never be. But may we have such an appreciation for your love, for your grace, that we seek to please you. We seek to be obedient, not out of obligation, not out of work, but out of love. As you love us as our Father, not not as a judge, but as our Father you love us, may we seek to love and please you as our Father, Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for your imputed grace to me. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my sins and protecting me from Satan, who has wanted a piece of every one of us for eternity, well, through his time anyway. Thank you, Lord, and I pray that you'll help each of us to leave here today thinking of you, Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name to you, God our Father, I pray, we pray, amen.